Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Jordan Smith, a senior reporter for The Intercept. Welcome to Dissent, an intercepted miniseries about the Supreme Court. During the middle of the last century, the U.S. government introduced the Indian Adoption Project. Through this project, Native children were taken from their families and communities and raised by white, non-Native families. A 1966 press release from the Bureau of Indian Affairs reads, quote, One little, two little, three little Indians, and 206 more, are brightening the homes and lives of 172 American families, mostly non-Indians, who have taken the Indian waifs as their own. A total of 209 Indian children have been adopted during the past seven years through the Indian Adoption Project. Mind you, even before this, Native children were removed from their homes and put into boarding schools. Facing harsh conditions and abuse, Native children were forbidden from speaking their language and practicing their religion. Families who didn't comply could be imprisoned. Whether it's 1871 or 1958, the U.S. government has a long history of undermining treaties it has signed with tribal nations and passing laws that eliminate tribal autonomy. They viewed tribes as quote-unquote uncivilized and that they had to assimilate into quote-unquote American society. By 1978, around one-third of all Native children had been removed from their families and communities. So that year... Congress passed the Indian Child Welfare Act in an effort to stop Native children from being taken from their communities. The Indian Child Welfare Act, also known as ICWA, established protections for Native children and their communities. But now, the Supreme Court case Holland v. Brackeen is putting it all on the line. So four years ago, um, we felt a very profound calling from God leading us to become foster parents and serve children that needed a safe home. That's Chad Brackeen. The Brackeens are a white family from Texas who are asking the Supreme Court to overturn ICWA. They'd fostered a native child and wanted to adopt him. But because of ICWA and that long history of separating families, native family members had priority for custody of the child. But we pursued adoption anyway, because uh, we felt like that was the right thing to do. Unfortunately, even with the support of his biological family, many other people that were involved with the case, the judge said because of ICWA, he had to deny our adoption. They fought the case. And actually, this is wild, before taking the case to the Supreme Court, they won their adoption case in Texas. But they're still charging forward to overturn ICWA. Not all cases end the ways ours did. Uh, in fact, we hear stories of other people in the same situations across the country 
In fact, there's two other families in the state that are going through the same pains and struggles that we are and fear for their children. We did that so that we can advocate that their best interest, the interest of the child, is what is considered in these adoptive placements, not their race. Oof. The implications of this case are huge. Overturning ICWA could open the door to further threats to tribal autonomy. There is a lot to unpack here. So I sat down with Rebecca Nagel. She's a journalist, citizen of Cherokee Nation, and host of This Land podcast. The second season of her podcast goes into great detail about how this seemingly simple adoption case is actually an attempt to dismantle tribal sovereignty. Rebecca, welcome to Descent. Thank you so much for having me. So you've done such extensive and amazing reporting on the case before the Supreme Court that we're going to talk about today, which is Holland versus Brackeen. So to start, would you lay out just the basics of the case for us? Yeah, absolutely. So um, a group of foster parents in the state of Texas are suing the federal government to strike down a law called the Indian Child Welfare Act that was created to prevent family separation in Native communities. Um, The plaintiffs uh, contend that the law um, unconstitutionally discriminated against them, which is um, an extraordinary claim given what actually happened in the custody cases, which I'm sure we'll get into. And Texas is basically making a state's rights argument. Native advocates, tribes that intervened in the case, um, and a lot of court watchers warned that the case is about far more than this law or Native children, um, and that it's actually about a far broader attack on tribal sovereignty and Indigenous nations within the U.S. Before we get too into the weeds with what happened at court, I want to talk a little bit more about the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA. Can you tell us like a little bit more about ICWA is and 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 a lot about what prompted Congress to pass it in 1978. Yeah, absolutely. And so when Congress passed ICWA in 1978, it was after there had been this big national survey that found that 25 to 35% of all native children had been taken out of their homes and away from their tribes. And a couple things were going on. There was a federal program where the Bureau of Indian Affairs literally gave the Child Welfare League of America money to take Native kids and put them in white homes with the very racist thinking that they were better off there. And the other thing that was happening at the time um, in far greater numbers was that Native children were being removed by social workers and child welfare agencies. And oftentimes for not for reasons like abuse, but for reasons like poverty or a child was being raised, you know, by their grandparent instead of by their biological parent. And so what ICWA does um, is actually a lot of different things, you know, at different steps in the process of a child going through either private adoption or um, more commonly through foster care puts 
guardrails on the process to make it harder to separate Native children from their families and tribes. And so some examples of what that looks like, you know, states are required to have active efforts to reunify children with their parents, not just reasonable efforts, which is the standard for everybody else. Tribes can intervene in cases or if the kid um, lives on tribal land, the case just goes to tribal court. And if children can't be reunified with their parents, ICWA sets out placement preferences of where they should go next, prioritizing family members and other members of that child's tribe. So, yeah, it's it's a really complex law that does a lot of different things. And these lawsuits, you know, one or two aspects of the law can kind of become a focal point. Um, but the main thing it does is just make it harder, not impossible, but harder um, to separate Native children from their families. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you to kind of lay out the list of placement preferences because the third preference comes up a lot in the argument. Right. And and we'll get yes. into that specifically <laughs> in a bit. But I think for people to understand that, we're going to need a bit more background about, you know, kind of what those placement preferences are, including that one. Yeah, absolutely. So, the f- so this is if a child um, cannot be what in social work or child welfare proceedings is called reunified with their biological parents, the placement preferences set out where they should go to next. And so the first placement preference is a member of their extended family. And actually, because a lot of Native folks are mixed, that extended family member could be Native or non-Native, as long as they're related to the child, they're prioritized equally. Um, The second placement preference is another citizen of that child's federally recognized tribe. And then the third placement preference is another citizen of a federally recognized tribe, and it doesn't have to be that child's tribe. And I'm sure we'll get into it, but like that was the that was the placement preference that um, upset some of the Supreme Court justices. What's interesting is that it's a you know it's a facial challenge to a law, and so usually you're looking for being able to at least point to a situation where that has happened and the plaintiffs in Texas could not. And so it was talked about a lot in arguments, although it didn't happen in any of the underlying custody cases and they couldn't bring forward an example where it had happened in any custody case. Right, right. We will talk about that a little bit more uh, here in a minute. So there are like several threads being pulled seemingly kind of all at once in the oral argument, but the common theme or a key to understanding what's up, I think is, is kind of understanding the relationship between the federal government and the various federally recognized tribes and Congress's plenary power as it relates to those tribes. Can you kind of explain that piece of it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, Tribes have a unique political relationship with the U.S. federal government that has been recognized kind of literally since, you know, the founding of the republic. (laughs) And so um, there are a lot of laws within the United States that treat tribes and tribal citizens differently than other people in the United States. And it's called a lot of different things. You know, people call it um, a treaty relationship. People also call it a trust relationship. But the difference in how, you know, indigenous folks and our nations are treated doesn't stem from a racial category. It stems from a political category under the law. And that category is established by lots of different parts of the Constitution. But I think most 
mostly the treaty clause. Um, And so the U.S. has signed treaties uh, with indigenous nations through the same constitutional process that it has signed treaties with other foreign powers. And so a lot of times in those treaties in exchange for land, the U.S. federal government offered or guaranteed certain kinds of protections. And so from that, Congress has a unique authority in the arena of federal Indian law. And that authority has been established actually kind of by the Supreme Court, um, but also recognized now for well over a century. And so it's just, you know, it's kind of late in, you know, the U.S. history to kind of come back and say, oh, you know, we can't treat Native people differently. That's racial discrimination. And also, you know, Congress doesn't have power to legislate in this area of the law um, when we've been allowing Congress to do that for a very long time. And so I think that that it can be kind of confusing to folks um, because uh, it, it it is a really different area of the law. But, you know, one way I put it is, you know, just like certain laws apply to me because I'm um, a citizen of the United States or because I'm a resident of Oklahoma, certain laws apply to me because I'm a citizen of Cherokee Nation. Um, and that is Absolutely how ICWA works. It The law, first of all, only applies to children who are either enrolled in a federally recognized tribe or eligible for enrollment. And as I already discussed, that's how the placement preferences flow to. So somebody could have Native ancestry and the law still wouldn't apply to them. So it's not a one-for-one equivalent to folks who have um, Native ancestry. Uh, the lawyer for the Brackeens, Matthew McGill, Uh, seemed to be suggesting that ICWA was beyond Congress's power and that instead it was just this impermissible scheme to give preference to tribes, tribal members based on race. And in so doing, he suggested the real victims here are, wait for it, the Brackeens, and that what ICWA really does is discriminate against them because they're white. Can you talk a little bit about McGill's argument And also, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit more about who McGill is and his background in these issues. Yeah. So Matthew McGill is a corporate lawyer um, who does a lot of appellate stuff. Um, So it's not his first time in front of the Supreme Court. And he works at a law firm called Gibson Dunn. Gibson Dunn is a really big corporate law firm that normally represents people like Amazon and Chevron and Walmart. They were also the law firm for the company behind the Dakota Access Pipeline. The other thing that they do is that they have a lot of clients that are in um, the gaming industry, so like casinos, and a lot of people in the gaming industry view tribal gaming as um, sort of uh, monopolizing a corner of the market. And Matthew McGill and um, a senior partner at his law firm named Ted Olson actually filed a federal complaint about a year ago making that argument and then using the exact same legal arguments that they're making here in this ICWA case, but instead about casinos. And so you can kind of already see um, literally how if they got a win in Brackeen, it could set precedent that would benefit their gaming clients, which is just really sinister when you think about how this case also just involves the lives of Native children. 
So that's Mr. McGill. And then the arguments that they're making, you know, they're basically making two really, really big arguments and then a third smaller argument. So the two big arguments that they're making are that ICWA violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which is basically, you know, laws in the United States can't treat people differently based on race. And they're saying, you know, this whole idea of tribes and tribal citizenship, and when it comes to ICWA, that's not a political classification, it's racial. And then the second argument that they're making is that, you know, child welfare and these types of cases are really up to states. You know, states are the ones that pass child welfare laws, and they get to decide how these cases are adjudicated. And Congress can't step in and tell states here what to do. Um, although there are actually like a ton of federal laws <laughs> that like that also came up during oral arguments. Like there are like this isn't the only federal law that governs uh, family law, but anyways. Um, so yeah, and then they're making like a smaller argument that's also saying that because state agent, so like, you know, a social worker who works for Texas has to actually like carry out what ICWA requires. It's called commandeering. So it's the federal government commandeering a state agent and that that's also unconstitutional. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, I thought that it was really interesting when, I think it was Sonia Sotomayor, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who was bringing up like, uh, well, what about the parental kidnapping and the Hague conventions. Counsel, can I turn to something you said, which was it displaces the best interest of the child standard. In most uh, state custody proceedings, the best interest of the child is uh, what guides those decisions. Yet we have the Hague Convention on the Abduction of Children that basically says to the court, you can't make that determination. You have to send the child back, and it gives a session, section of exceptions, etc. Um, and it even says um, standards of proof, etc. Why is this case any different than the Hague Convention? It, it, maybe you could talk about those, and actually, because it relates to it relates back to the relationship of the federal government and that trust relationship with, with, with tribes, right? I mean, the way they're trying to explain the way this works is the same way, right? Yeah. And McGill just seemed to be kind of not having it. 
but or maybe not understanding it. I yeah. don't know which it was. <laughs> yeah. No, there were I mean, I think there were funny moments um with both McGill and then the lawyer for Texas also where they just kind of got tripped up. Um because what they were trying to do is they're they're trying to make the argument that the implications of this lawsuit aren't broad. And um, you know, Sotomayor, Gorsuch, other um justices weren't buying that. Um this is sort of like, well, how can you say this? How can this be true about Iqbal? and not be true, like you said, about the kidnapping law or the Hague Convention or like, you know, there's a law around like um, that protects service members who might be in child welfare proceedings. Um, that's a federal law. And so would all of those laws also be struck down if it was struck down? And then it was kind of the same thing, you know, they were saying around um, Congress not having this authority when it comes to tribes. So they were trying to argue that, you know, children aren't within like tribal self-interest, which is crazy. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, they're also trying to say, oh, well, because it's off of tribal land and, you know, it doesn't just apply to kids who are on the reservation. So they were trying to split hairs and sort of make a narrow argument. But when you kind of zoom out and look at the case, the arguments that they're making are quite broad. And that's what's scary about the case is that it could have really big implications on um, federal Indian law. So, you know, if ICWA discriminates based on race, well, what about um, casinos? Like, how is it fair um, or how is it, you know, racial discrimination for this non-Native foster parent to not be able to adopt a Native kid, but it's not for a tribal tribe to be able to operate a casino where a non-native developer cannot. You know, what about um, healthcare? You know, why can I go to a healthcare clinic that only serves tribal citizens? And if you went there and tried to get healthcare, they would turn you away. Um, You know, if we are just a racial group, um, well, what about the environmental regulations that we have, the elections, the government, the land rights, the water rights? What racial group has its own court system, its own police force? And so the fear is that the case could really be a domino effect. And so at, at the Supreme Court, they were trying to downplay that and sort of draw these sort of like lines in the sand. But I mean, there was this moment with between like Kagan and um, the lawyer for Texas where Kagan was just like, like almost kind of like she's obviously not saying this, but almost kind of just like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> like, it, like oh, we're gonna get to yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was kind of great. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. No. Absolutely right. Um. Because all over the argument, it, it seemed to me there was like this willful misunderstanding of the difference between political classification and racial classification. And one of the ways in which it repeatedly gets brought up is in reference to that third preference. And it was like several of the justices and my mind immediately jumps to Justice Brett Kavanaugh here. Yes. Seem to be suggesting that like, aha, this third preference is what signals that this is actually all about race. So here's Kavanaugh. I want to ask about the equal protection issue uh, quickly. Um, The equal protection issue is difficult, I think, because we have to find the line between two fundamental and and critical constitutional values. So on the one hand, the great respect for tribal self-government, for the success of Indian tribes uh, and Indian peoples with recognition of the history of oppression and discrimination against tribes and peoples. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, the fundamental principle we don't treat 
uh, people differently on account of their race or ethnicity or ancestry, uh, equal justice under law. Uh, I don't think we would ever allow, um, as the court suggested in Palmore in 1984, Congress to say that white parents should get a preference for white children in adoption or that Latino parents should get a preference for Latino children in adoption proceedings. I don't think that would be permitted uh, under that principle of equal justice that we recognized in Palmore. So, yeah, that one. Um, And I want you to say whatever you would like to say about that, but I was kind of hoping that you could explain within this here why the third placement preference is not about race and also kind of go back into something you talked about a little bit at the beginning, which is equally important, which is how it's not even an issue in this case, because I felt like they kept invoking it as a way to sort of theoretically at least, sort of bolster this idea that this is all about race and thus, you know, sort of an equal protection problem. But it doesn't actually exist because, A, it doesn't exist in this case, but also it's because that's not what the third uh, preference is signaling at all. So yeah, take any piece of all of that you want. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think Kavanaugh has this habit of sort of making statements that are I think a dog whistle like he that's actually the more tempered example like he has another moment where he's just like well we couldn't we couldn't pass a law where just white people could only adopt white children could we and he says things that are a little bit like that but more inflammatory and so I think it just betrays that it's not really like that is a statement that isn't about the law because the law doesn't just apply to people who are native or who have native ancestry like I already explained Um, To me, that statement is just about the raw politics of the case and sort of buying into um, really the framing that the individual plaintiffs have used. Yeah. And then when it comes to the third placement um, preference, it wasn't invoked in any of the underlying custody cases. And actually, one thing that's really important to note is that in all of the underlying custody cases, there was a Native blood relative that wanted to raise the Native child Every Native blood relative got pushback, whether that was from a social worker, a family court judge, or the individual plaintiffs themselves. And only one Native grandmother was able to win custody, and she had to fight to be able to adopt her grandchild for six years. Um, And so it's just so lop. Like, that was the thing that made me very angry about listening to the oral arguments was having, like, talked to those Native families and, like, seen unheard stories of the real, very real barriers that Native families face when they're just trying to keep their children. And for the justices to spend so much time on this hypothetical that like isn't even happening. And so the reason the third placement preference is there is because um, Native communities are more complicated than just like a federally recognized tribe. So like, for example, uh, as Cherokee people, there are three federally recognized Cherokee tribes, two here in Oklahoma that have the same reservation, the same land. And so, you know, somebody, maybe a child could be enrolled Cherokee Nation, but then one of their extended family members is United Katua. And it would be 
completely appropriate for, um, you know, a UKB person to adopt that child. There are also Native people who um, might live on a reservation that is not um, their own. A lot of times people also are members of more than one tribe, and some tribes have rules where you can only enroll in one tribe, so they might be enrolled in one tribe, but eligible for membership in two. That's actually one of the children in this case. Um, he's eligible for enrollment and actually three federally recognized tribes, but is only enrolled in one of them. And so, yeah, so there's a lot of reasons why somebody would be an appropriate caregiver for a child, but not a citizen of their tribe, but still like connected to that child's community. I think Gershon Gorn, who was the lawyer for the intervening tribes, did a really good job of explaining it, where sort of the hypothetical they're talking about, I think he called it like the Arizona to Maine, where it would just be like completely unrelated person, completely unrelated tribe. Um, and the plaintiffs in Texas haven't put forward such an example. And so we're talking about a hypothetical that like may have never happened, at least that nobody can point to. Um, and so, yeah, again, I just think for me, the takeaway from that is that the justices are sort of more concerned in these hypothetical questions and what is actually happening on the ground, which I think is very concerning. Um, and I think is also, and I'll stop here, but I think is a really good, is a reason why this is a question for Congress, because Congress is the body of our government that can like have hearings, that can do investigations, that can issue reports, that can be like, well, what is actually happening? Because I don't think that we should determine what policy is best for the well-being of Native children by a bunch of, like, you know, nine, like, pretty ignorant people about how the law it works, like, what's happening on the ground, um, based on hypotheticals. You know, it should be based on what's actually happening in these custody cases. And that's that's an issue for Congress, not the Supreme Court. That's absolutely right. It's the it's the question of that that's policy making, right? Which actually now we'll come up, we'll kind of come to the Kagan moment here. <laughs> because this is where Texas sort of enters the picture, at least in our conversation. Um, you know, they've they've sort of firmly stuck their foot in the middle of this case. And I will say, um, for more on that, you have to listen to season two of Rebecca's podcast. But representing the state at the court is Solicitor General. Uh, Judd Stone, who had a couple lines of attack, um, what we were talking about, the anti-commandeering, so that basically provisions of ICWA conscript Texas into enforcing a scheme that, by the way, too, was beyond uh, Congress's plenary power and is basically illegal. But in trying to sort of make his argument, he he kind of created out of whole cloth um, parameters for Congress. And to this, Justice Elena Kagan was like, wait, What? Like yeah, I guess power. the only point I was making that I'm sure we, that we can find places where the court has said that um, Congress has power over each of these areas, but I don't think you'll be able to find a place where the court has said what the plenary power means is these three things and these three things alone, and the plenary power doesn't extend further. Because after all, the court has said I mean, I, I don't really believe in, in reading our opinions like statutes, but when the court uses the phrase plenary power tens and tens of times over decades and decades, I mean, plenary means unqualified. It means all-encompassing. Now, I don't doubt what you said earlier, that it might have an occasional exception here or there, but it strikes me as a very odd way to think about plenary power to just start, like, constructing categories and, le- and saying everything else is left out when we've said over and over, 
everything except really rare things are in. So Stone's position also clearly did not impress Justice Neil Gorsuch, who we should note, right, is the only one on the court with substantial experience in federal Indian law. Indian affairs power. I'm sorry to interrupt, but this new rule would, would, I think, take a huge bite out of Title 25 of the U.S. Code, which regulates uh, the federal government's relationship with tribal members. Um, There are health care provisions that um, Congress promises to Native Americans off-reservation. That doesn't seem to fall in any of your buckets. Um, uh, Congress has permitted tribes to exercise power over environmental regulations that have indirect effects off-reservation. That would, that would seem to go, too. Um, we have laws that promise Native Americans access to sacred sites off-reservation and religious liberties off-reservation. Um, that, that would seem to go. And I'm not even sure maybe the liquor sale, those old precedents, but maybe that's commerce. I don't know. But there would be a lot that would be bitten out of Title 25. We'd be busy for the next many years striking things down. And then, you know, several of the justices seem to have a hard time wrapping their heads around uh, Indian law until the lawyer you mentioned uh, that's representing the tribes, Ian Gershengorn, got up and basically just kind of slayed Stone and McGill's arguments kind of one by one. Uh, Let's listen to that. Now, Interior has, has explained how good cause works. It involves, you can take into account the decisions of the, the views of the parents, the views of the child, if the child uh, is old enough to express them. You can take into account sibling attachment. You can take into account bonding with foster parents as long as it was not done illegally through ICWA. The thing you cannot take into account is socioeconomic status. So what the Casey brief and others say, and what the reason why medical professionals are here, states are here, family rights acts, uh, advocates are here, is because ICWA is the gold standard. It adopts that those evidence-based presumptions and allows for flexibility to protect the best interests of the child. And then again... First, this is at the core of the plenary power doctrine. From the beginning, the, um, the plenary power doctrine was used to protect Indians from non-Indians. There is no doubt that if states had moved in and done a wholesale physical removal of Indian children, that would have been within the duty of protection. The fact that this is being done through state courts, through state family law, doesn't deprive Congress of power. Do you think that Gershengorn finally got through to the judges? Yeah. So Gershengorn, um, this isn't his first time representing tribes in front of the Supreme Court. And he is one of the lawyers that's been tapped by a broader project called the Tribal Supreme Court Project um, that was co-founded by the National Congress of American Indians and the Native American Rights Fund after about a 30-year period where tribes um, had lost the majority of cases. And so tribes were really, like in the early 2000s, really not doing well in front of the Supreme Court. And so they, what they did is they went out and they looked at lawyers who have a practice um, already kind of established at the Supreme Court. Gershengorn was the Solicitor General before, and then have brought them in and sort of made them better, brought them up in their arena of federal Indian law and made them experts there. And so, um, you know, Gershengorn didn't just fall out of the sky and be like an effective advocate. It was also, you know, like decades of work from lots of different folks to um, create that. 
um, to create that project. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that um, in terms of where the justices are at, I mean, I think from the beginning, there were four justices who were very clearly um, skeptical of Mr. McGill and Mr. Stone's arguments. So Kagan, Sotomayor, Jackson, and also Gorsuch. Um, so the three liberal justices and Gorsuch. Um, and then you had four justices that in my mind, their questioning wasn't really tied to the details of the case or really the legal arguments presented, but it was more about the politics of the case and how it looked. Um, this is a court that's also hearing cases around affirmative action. And so this kind of dog whistle of like, oh, well, this is treating people differently based on race, I think has a lot of traction with this court, especially Chief Justice Roberts. And I think that if there is a swing vote in the case. It's um, Barrett. So she, um, the questions that she asked were very specific and they were kind of in the weeds about how the law works. And it was about that kind of third argument, anti-commandeering, which um, could still strike down ICWA, but would have less of a disastrous effect in the arena of federal Indian law. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, um, I think what's hard is, you know, a lot of people think, you know, a lot of people say that the justices have kind of made up their mind by the time we get to oral arguments and some of the justices kind of already seemed set in their positions. But, um, yeah, I think Barrett seemed very curious about how the law actually works on the ground and was also asking questions that were more narrow, um, and less would have, less of a sweeping implication on the rights of indigenous nations in the U S regarding Barrett. Um, are, are, are just to be clear, cause I, I realized she was asking some very specific questions and I felt like kind of out of my <laughs> element trying to figure it out, <laughs> yeah. but it seemed to me that what she was trying to get at were, were I, I, I don't, I don't know. Was she trying to get at severability? Like that you could like not burn it all down, but, but, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. This isn't necessarily for yeah. her. <laughs> yeah. She was, she asked, I think to each lawyer, so four times, she asked the same question, um, which was basically who carries out active efforts. So um, I mentioned it before, but ICWA requires active efforts to reunify a native parent with their child if the child has been taken away by child welfare workers. And so she basically was like, well, who who is required to carry out these active efforts, um, which kind of goes to that anti-commandeering. And so, you know, there is a world where there is a Barrett opinion that maybe is more narrow, where only part of ICWA is struck down or ICWA, um, and that would be like the active efforts section, or maybe ICWA is struck down, but it's struck down in a way that doesn't impede pewned the rest of federal Indian law. I think the big fear with this case is that it's going to be like a bomb going off in Title 25 and have really big implications um, for other areas of the law. So yeah, so Barrett was asking a very specific question. Her question actually didn't get answered <laughs> by any of the advocates. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, to end, I, I want to zoom back out a bit. Um, you know, in the argument from various lawyers, we heard a lot about how terrible it was and how victimized the Brackeens have been by it. But you've done so much reporting on this. And I want to know from you how ICWA actually works, like how it's applied in practice. Like, what can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, one is I don't think we have to go further than the custody cases that are before the court to see why ICWA is important and why it's necessary. So, like I said before, every child in the underlying custody cases had a Native relative who wanted to adopt them. And every Native relative got pushback, you know, and a lot of times that pushback was about things like, you know, they had a nonviolent criminal record or they were poor. Like, it's the same type of crap that was happening in the 70s. Um, You know, these individual foster parents also went to pretty extreme lengths to to try and gain custody and fight off blood relatives who wanted to adopt the children. Um, So, I mean, the Cliffords, who are the couple from Minnesota, Daniel Clifford, like, wrote a whole affidavit about how um, Child P's grandmother shouldn't even have um, supervised visits with her grandchild because she had bad boundaries. And the concrete example that she offered the court about this grandmother's bad boundaries was a list of every time that grandmother had given her grandchild a gift. Um, So just some really kind of awful and heartbreaking things actually happen in these custody cases. And when you dig into it, like the awful heartbreaking thing isn't that the Brackeens didn't get custody because actually, oh wait, they did. It's really what happened to these Native relatives and this idea that these kids could have stayed um, not only with their family, but with their tribe and with their culture. And instead that relationship was severed. And so I think the the cases show just exactly why um, ICWA is still needed. You know, what we know about how ICWA works, you know, zooming out, um, there's actually not federal data because um, uh, there was going to be federal data under Obama and then Trump rescinded it. And so it is now a lawsuit that I haven't checked in on in a while um, over whether or not the federal government would collect ICWA data along with uh, what's called the AFCARS data, but it's like the big national data that's collected around um, kids in foster care. But what we can see in pockets, and this, um, this research comes from uh, the Casey family, programs is that when people comply with ICWA, so when people notify the tribe, when people do active efforts with parents, when people involve the tribe and work with the tribe, kids have better outcomes. And those better outcomes um, mean staying in foster care for less time and finding what people call permanency. But basically, you know, that home where kids are going to stay, finding permanency sooner. Wow. Finally, I... I want to get back to Gorsuch's clip about how if the court accepts like Stone's view of Congress's power, that the court will be just busy for years striking things down. I want you to say a little bit more about that because, you know, kind of to what you're saying, it seems like, wait, is that the point of why we're here? So, you know, maybe talk a little bit more about what the ramifications of or potential fallout from this case is and how challenging ICWA may be part of a larger strategy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that there's a lot of evidence that 
the well-being of Native children are not, it's not the focal point of the special interests who brought this lawsuit. I mean, the Brackeen lawsuit didn't organically raise out of the Brackeens trying to adopt a Native child. Um, there has been a coordinated campaign to strike ICWA down over the past decade. And these lawyers like Mr. McGill are out there actively looking for clients. And so they found the Brackeens through an adoption attorney. And so what we found was that, you know, a handful of private adoption attorneys, a handful of right-wing organizations were actually all kind of getting their money from the same <laughs> place, the Bradley Foundation. And these corporate lawyers like Mr. McGill have been leading the charge to get ICWA struck down. It's actually a really, really small group of people. And I think we can see the ulterior motives that all those people have. You know, the private adoption industry um, basically fights any regulation that makes it harder to adopt children at all. And that's because there aren't enough available children for adoption. There are more people who want to adopt than kids who are available. What we found within internal documents around the funding for the anti-ICWA campaign when it came from right-wing organizations with the, was that it was about building state-based infrastructure, conservative in- infrastructure through litigation. Um, so it wasn't even about tribes or Native kids or child welfare. It was just this like broader political agenda. And then I think with the corporate lawyers, we can see you know, I think they kind of showed their hand um, when they filed the Maverick Gaming case that, look, you know, this isn't just about Native kids. These legal theories have broader implications in the arena of federal Indian law. Um, and so I think Gibson Dunn and Matthew McGill have already kind of shown us um, what their ulterior motives are by filing that lawsuit. And so, and I think for Indigenous nations, you know, I was at the Supreme Court um, during oral arguments, and there were a lot of tribal citizens and tribal leaders who were there. And it was a really heavy day. You know, I think what it feels like for um, tribes is just, you know, we're still fighting for our legal existence. You know, we're still fighting to maintain um, the treaty rights that we have. And what's happening again now that is so tragic and that what's happened before is that our children are the first line of attack. Our children are sort of the first line of defense. They're the tip of the spear in this project of colonization. And I think that's a really heart-wrenching thing for tribes to see not only how much is at stake in this case, but that they're using our kids again to attack tribes. Um, And so, yeah, and so just briefly to explain the broader implications in terms of legality is, um, you know, I've, I kind of explained the equal protection argument. So this idea that you can't treat tribes or tribal citizens differently. I mean, you know, it's everything, you know, I can carry an eagle feather because I'm a citizen of a federally recognized tribe. I can get my health care at IHS, you know, I can participate in my tribal government. Um, there's, you know, if I commit a crime on my reservation, who can prosecute me is differently. I mean, there's just, it's a whole scheme of laws, um, that could crumble, um, Um, If you can't treat Native people differently based on race, tribes and tribal citizens differently based on race. And then the other big argument they're making is just that Congress doesn't have this authority. And 
you know, you heard Gorsuch being like, well, what about this and what about that? Um, you know, Congress has passed a lot of laws that govern, you know, um, the federal relationship between tribes and the U.S. federal government. And so if Congress doesn't have that authority, well, then what happens with all these laws? And it's kind of ironic because, you know, there have been periods of time where the laws that Congress passed didn't really benefit Native people. You know, we had the termination era. Um, you know, we had the allotment and boarding school era. And since the 70s, we've had what people call the self-determination era, where, you know, Native folks organized and we finally got laws that, while not perfect, um, do more good than harm. And now people are coming back and saying, um, ooh, Congress can't do that. You know, I think it feels a little late. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. A little late um, to be saying that. Well, also, I mean, it just it's the whole idea that there are obviously <laughs> racial elements here, but the whole scheme and what they want to make that the point, whereas the point is there's this political, this, this, sovereignty, right? That like this, the tribes are recognized as a political, as a sovereign entity with a relationship like a foreign government, right? So if if they're able to say, I mean, so that's what, oh, it was driving me crazy the whole time. It was like, they seem to willfully want to come back to race where, you know, the lawyers would be saying, well, but wait, this is actually about this, (laughs) this relationship. But I guess maybe that is kind of what you're saying sounds like is the point to muddy the waters because it becomes a lot easier to get rid of, you know, casinos on, on tribal land if those were just allowed because of race and not because of a political class. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I mean, and that's, that is exactly what Mr. McGill like argued in the federal complaint they filed on behalf of the non-native casino developer. You know, they said, hi, I'm a non-native casino developer. I can't operate, you know, these types of gaming facilities that tribes in the state of Washington can, and I am not making all this money that they do. And that's racial discrimination, you know? And so in that case, you know, it's just like, it's about money. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, I think that that's exactly right. Um, You know, uh, it's, it's sad, but I think the, you know, the sovereignty that tribes still do have, you know, some folks see it as a threat and would, you know, benefit from it being diminished. And I think that that's the broader goal of this case, this lawsuit. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That was Rebecca Nagel, a journalist, citizen of Cherokee Nation, and host of This Land podcast. Side note, it is excellent. If you haven't listened yet, I highly recommend that you do. And that's it for this episode of Descent, a production of The Intercept. This episode was produced by Jose Olivares and Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. And Rick Kwan mixed our show. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com join. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. Until next time, I'm Jordan Smith.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.